Good morning. My name is Randy. My wife, Brittany, and I have been members here for a while, and many of you know our two sons, Zion and Judah. Zion and Judah. Uh, I'm one of the people who helps out with the student group as well on Sunday mornings, and today I'm thankful because I get to share from God's Word to you today. We're, uh, we're continuing our series on beginnings. We've been looking at this story, the origin story that God has told us through the first few chapters of the first book, Genesis. And Pastor Doug has really blessed us by opening this up to us and showing us just God's story and how these things all connect. And there's so many things we've been learning. In the first message, we looked at the vastness of an eternal creator. We saw this vision for who God is and what he's like and how it leads us to a place that we can trust him. Living in our world, there's so many times where we don't know. We don't know why, we don't know how, we don't know all these things, but we have an eternal God who made all things, knows all things, and loves us. So his eternal greatness is the basis for why we can trust him. And then next we looked at this pattern for, that God laid out for us as he spoke the word, world into existence. He spoke in six days and he left the seventh day of rest. And Pastor Doug was reminding us of how badly we need that rest and how we find that rest in Christ. But also this pattern for our week and that we need the Sabbath rest. And God didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he's setting a pattern for us. And then we saw how, as image bearers of God, we're made in the image of God, that we're also called to be responsible, to care for and keep the things that God has made and given us. And we focus specifically on marriage in that sense, and how in a human marriage, this reality that reflects that Christ and his church, how we're responsible to care for that. And then in Genesis 3, we saw the schemes of the serpent. We saw how Satan attacks and the fall of mankind. And in believing that God was holding out on them, Adam and Eve... They sought for things to make them more like God. Ironically, they were already made like God and became less like him as they bit into the lie. And so God promised to send this son. He promised a future and present rescue, a future rescue that a son would come from the line of Eve, from the line of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. But he also presently rescued them by covering them with his own righteousness. And so God spilled blood to cover a sacrifice for Adam and Eve. And when we put our trust in Christ... What he's done for us covers us as well. And then last week, we looked at the effects of a broken world. We saw in the first family that Cain and Abel represent these two family lines, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the offspring lines. And Cain rose up and killed his own brother. And what a heinous act that was. And what we saw is that Cain just wouldn't accept responsibility for what he had done. He had so many opportunities that God just kept pouring grace to him and pouring grace to him, but he rejected it at each turn. And while we, we tend to separate ourselves from the bad guys in the story, that, that we've done the same thing, but God extends his grace to us. And so as we move into the message today, we're going to connect the stories from Cain through Noah. And so would you pray with me one more time here as we pray that God reveal himself through his word. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. You didn't have to tell us this story. You didn't have to show us this. We would have been so lost without it. And so help us today as we open your word, as we look at what you've told us. Help us to see it with eyes that un and ears and a heart that understands. Thank you for all that you do and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, before we get into the passage today, just a background connection. I've said a little bit of this already, but as we bridge the gap between Cain and Noah, one thing that's going to be really important for today is that you know a little bit about Genesis 3.15. I'm going to back up there for a second, just share that with you. And so what happens is, as Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and God shows up and calls them out on it, he actually curses the serpent first. He actually never curses Adam and Eve. He curses things about the world for them. But he curses the serpent, and he says this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock 
And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the thing we really want to look at in 15. I will put enmity, which is like a fight, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Why that's important is in our story today, what we're going to see is these two family lines. When it says the offspring of the serpent, it doesn't mean baby snakes. It doesn't mean demons necessarily either. What it actually means is human beings who choose not to follow God. And so as we look at these two lines and start there, I would like us to turn to Genesis 4.17. And in our church, we often stand to read in honor of God's word. So would you join me in standing as I read 4.17 through 24? Today what we're going to see is both the growth of sin and the promise of hope. Genesis 4.17 says this, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah, Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You can take a seat. Thank you very much. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to see it well. So the first section of what we see here is we see this growth of sin. We see that sin grows in this human family. And, and Moses really highlights this as the author by he looks at this one guy, Lamech, and he zooms way in on him. And so we follow the line down. We don't get much of a comment about people until then. And what we see is while the murderous actions of Lamech are maybe less heinous than Cain, who killed his own brother, we see that this man is spiritually blind in a way that's scary. Firstly, notice this man's blindness as it relates to marriage. He marries two wives. God had given marriage to Adam and Eve, and he had said that the two shall become one flesh. And he corrupts this, and he takes two wives, and he twists it to his own desires. The second way you can see his blindness is in his family. They, he sees himself as impressive. And in worldly standards, this guy has a family where his sons are doing big cultural things. They are an impressive family. He's the head of a family that creates tools, advances agricultural industry, creates music. They're impressive in the culture. And Lamech seems to know it. And in his blindness, he expects to be treated with the respect of somebody that his caliber deserves. His own understanding of his own importance leads him to kill a young man for striking him. He doesn't pay back equally. This man wounded him and struck him, and so he kills him. How dare you touch the almighty Lamech? This is a deep ugliness in this sort of pride, isn't there? But you know, I struggle with this kind of pride too. If we're honest, aren't we all like this by nature? Don't we hold people who sin against us more accountable than we hold ourselves when we sin against them? We struggle with this type of blindness too, the blindness of prideful self-importance, the, the blindness that expects you to see me as important as I want to be. And so we struggle to follow Jesus' words. We struggle to turn the other cheek because we kind of like the whole plan of don't get mad, get even. But when we see Jesus' life and how he was mistreated, we struggle to follow him in that way. Just think, the king of the universe comes down, right? Slapped, spit on, 
crucified by people that he created. It's hard to love someone that way. But Jesus calls those who are his to take up our cross and follow him. To pray for those who persecute us and to love our enemies. The sin inside us, though, begs us to be like Lamech. How dare they do that to me? How dare you say that about me? How dare you not see me as important as I think I am? But our God calls us a different way. And I want to zoom in more on just how dark Lamech's blindness really is by comparing him to Cain. When, when Cain sinned, right, he, he, first it starts out with he brings this offering, right? Abel is this shepherd, kind of he has a flock, and, and Cain, he has the field, he has produce, and, and he brings some of what he had, and Abel brings the best of what he had, and Pastor Doug did a great job of showing us that difference. The difference is not whether one brings an animal or one brings grain. God had, in, in like the rest of the Old Testament, he shows us that he wants grain offerings, those are fine. The problem is he gives some of what he's got, he doesn't give his best. And so when he gets called out for it, when God doesn't accept that offering, he doesn't take responsibility for giving God second best. He's mad that God doesn't accept it. How, how dare you not accept my gift? And so he rejects responsibility for what his offering lacked. And then when he kills his brother and God calls him out for, King Roy, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? He rejects responsibility for his actions against his brother. He rejects responsibility for his actions when he complains about the curse. God makes him wander. He can't be a person of the field anymore because he's not going to be able to stay around and let the crops grow. He's got to wander around. And as he does, oh, my curse is so bad. Like, he's, bad, he's mad about the consequences, but never taking accountability for the sin, right? Cain is very blind, but Lamech, he's bragging about his murder. If you look in your Bible, hopefully yours has the same thing where it indented that passage where he talks to his wives. He's almost singing it. It's like a poem, Aranzilla, hear my voice. He's calling him, come listen to me, I got something to brag about. He's not just reporting an unfortunate event. He's not saying, oh, like I lost my temper, I lost my mind, I struck this, I shouldn't have done. He's like, look, this man struck me and look what happens to him. The blindness is so much deeper. He presumes later about the protection of God. God, when, when Cain sinned and God gave him his job, you have to wander, Cain's like, if I go out and wander, people are going to know why I'm wandering. They're not going to want me around. They're going to kill me. And God puts a mark on Cain and says, if anybody does that, I will avenge you seven times over. Lamech never gets a word from God that way, never gets a promise from God that way, but assumes it anyway. He says, surely, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Which, will, by the way, Jesus will use later when Peter says, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times? I'll tell you 70 times seven, right? It's a connection here. But he's bragging about this, and he presumes that God will be gracious to him. He presumes that God will be merciful to him. And he elevates himself. And again, this is ugly. This kind of blindness is ugly, but again, this is not a Lamech-only problem. It's actually, I would argue, a human default. We presume on the riches of God's mercy all the time. Think about this. If, if, you've, if you've had conversations with people who don't know Jesus, and you ask them about what, what happens when you die, do you believe in heaven? Do you believe there's a real place called heaven that people go? Most people that you talk to in our culture often say yes. Not all, but most. And if they do, the follow-up question is, well, are you going there, and how do you know? And a typical answer you'll get is something like, well, you know, I'm pretty good. Like, I'm not that bad of a person. I try to be good at least. And I know I'm not perfect, but nobody is. And, and I try to be nice. I even pray sometimes. I went to church a couple times last year. 
So, you know, God is nice. I think I'm going to make it in. What a presumption that is on God's grace and mercy. No understanding of how just and holy God is. No understanding of how heinous our sin is against him, how we've rebelled against a holy God. No understanding of how their condition before a holy God is desperate and terrifying. No concept of the depth of their brokenness. No concept of a need for a savior. Instead, well, God is nice, so he'll be lenient towards me. This is not a Lamech-only problem. He never said anything about being nice as being a requirement. He never said that. Instead, he saves us through faith in Jesus Christ and apart from our works because they're never good enough. So what if, while presuming upon the niceness of God because you're overall nice, what if you reject the offer of his son because you don't think you need it? Will God be merciful to you? Will God be merciful to me if I reject that? God, I pray not. So surely if Cain's revenge is seven times and Lamech's will be 77, right? It's a terrible presumption. And so the family line of Cain is spiraling downwards at increasing speed. They're becoming more and more blind and more and more numb to the sin that's killing them. And while Lamech assumes a mercy from God that God never promised, we really do need God to show up with some mercy here. We really do need it because this is the only family line that's left. Abel's already dead. So this is what we got. And so we're further getting away from God every generation in the story, and the only good child is killed. What is going to happen? We need God to show up with mercy. And so we look at our second point of the planting of a seed. And in Genesis 4, 25 and 26, it says this, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Just when we need to hear it, a word of mercy appears. God gives a replacement child for the serpent-crushing family. The storyline seems to almost restart a bit in verse 25, because Adam and Eve have another named son. And Eve understands it because she actually names him, saying he's the replacement. She knows that he's Abel's replacement. God has not forsaken his promise already, though it looks terrible. We have a God who always follows through. And so he plants the first seeds. He brings life from a family where there was death. He restores a family line that was gone. And just as quickly as the spiral spun downward in the family of Cain, it seems like here, Seth's family is actually going uphill. His own name means something like appointed because God appointed him to take the role of Abel as the head of the good family line. And so Enosh's birth triggers something even more incredible. People begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Now what that means, by the way, is that they start depending on God for life. They see God as trustworthy. They see God as faithful. And they see their need for him. Acts 2.21 says it like this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, same phrase, shall be saved. These are people being saved. They're calling upon God. They're depending on God. So here's this family line, and God is merciful in showing his grace to them, and they're receiving it. Through the godly line of Seth, people begin to depend again on God as their Savior. They put their trust in him. They call upon him. They see their need. But what you'll notice in this line, we're going to read their family line in a second, and unlike Cain's family line, nobody's all that impressive, which is kind of telling for us. 
at least as the world will count it. You have Lamech's sons who make tools, and they have different kinds of farming now, and they're doing all these things. They make music, they're cultured, they're impressive. But these people who depend on God, they're not the ones who make the headlines. God, from the very beginning, shows us that he chooses the less impressive family to show how impressive he is. And if you feel as unimpressive as I feel when I'm alone with my thoughts, when I know the truth about who I am, then that's really good news for you, isn't it? That's great news for me. I'm not as impressive as I like to think I am. I'm not as impressive as I like other people to think I am. And I work really hard to make people think that, don't you? But we know ourselves. And so isn't it such a praise that even here, God's already reminding us, hey, I don't choose the impressive. Look, look, all throughout Scripture, he chooses the younger over the oldest all the time. The barren woman to bring children through, the youngest son, not even invited to the king crowning ceremony, David becomes king. A carpenter and a young woman parent a savior. A Samaritan woman with a life much less than perfect, living broken and immorally, he reveals himself as the Messiah too for the very first time, the savior that's coming. The 12 disciples, unlearned men, to spread the news through and turn the whole world upside down, people like you and I who don't feel impressive and wonder why God uses us. God confounds the wisdom of this world by using the foolish things of the world to receive glory. Amen. This is such good news. So let's read about this family that God chose as the offspring of the woman. We're going to look at 5.1, and this is a section that I want you to hear the pattern of. So I am going to read a fairly long section here, and it's going to sound repetitive, and it's supposed to. Moses wants you to catch this, okay? So this section I'm calling Rays of Sun During a Deadly Harvest. You're going to notice the harvest they seem to reap is death. Watch this, Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And just freezer. He just basically restarted the story, didn't he? He went all the way back to like Genesis 1.26. He's like, by the way, I haven't given up on this plan. Genesis 3 did happen. It is fallen. It is broken. But by the way, I'm going to restart as I tell you this in Genesis 5. This is the original thing coming through. So watch. Here's the pattern. Catch the pattern here. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived... After he fathered uh, Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. 
after he fathered Methuselah, 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after, after he fathered Lamech, this is a different Lamech, 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. You see the pattern? In all the verses, it basically says, this guy had, lived this long until he had his first named son. Then after that, he had other sons and daughters and stuff, lived for a while, and he, thank you, died. And so death is still reigning. And what's funny about this passage is, is as 21st century readers, our first look on this is how did they live so long? And we struggle with that, right? But think about this. Back up a second. Put yourself in the shoes of somebody who just read Genesis 1 through 4 today. When, in Genesis 1, when Adam and Eve were made, how long were they supposed to live? Forever. Human beings were made to live forever. Long ages are not weird. Death is weird. And that's, that's what this passage is trying to bring up. That's why it keeps saying, and he died, and he died. What's the case? Yes, this is the godly line, but yes, death is still reigning. Death is still winning. Adam and Eve were made to live forever, and when they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and sin, they brought death. 969 years is a long time, but not compared to forever. I think we catch that. I think it's so funny that death is such a normal part of our life, right? Everybody we know until Jesus comes back will. And yet it's still weird, isn't it? When you see something that's not alive, isn't it weird to see that thing? I remember when I was a little boy, I lived on a dirt road. I'm from Canada up in Toronto, and I was on a dirt road, and I was driving my bike, and I remember the first time like, I went right by like something dead on the road. I don't remember what it was. It wasn't a moose, but whatever it was. And, uh, and as I'm coming by it, I remember like seeing this non-living thing and the, and the wind move its hair, its fur, and it not move at all. And I shuddered. I remember shuddering. And for a long time, if I drove my car over something or by something or saw something, I always had this shudder. And, and I think we need to not forget those things, right? That like death should be weird to us. We weren't meant to die. We were made to live with God forever. And we see a glimpse of this with Enoch, right? Enoch is the one that stands out, this whole pattern. He lived this long and then he died. And this is Enoch walked with God. Whoa, 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 time out, that's different. And when he did, he didn't die, he, God took him. Do you see the hope that's in this passage? There's a break that calls your attention to it on purpose. It's a very droning passage. This and this and this and he died and some numbers and some math and some stuff. But then Enoch, all of a sudden, boom. He walked with God and he was not for God took him. So what does it mean to walk with God? I want to know, right? I don't want to die. Well, it means to live in light of God's commands. To walk with God is to walk according to what God says, but it's also to walk with God. This communion, this fellowship. Enoch actually opens the door to reveal a great hope of God's people. There's actually a way to live with God forever. There's actually an answer to death. The people of God were waiting for more than just a victory over the serpent, more than just a death to Satan, but they were also looking for an answer to death. The death that was brought in after the temptation and after the fall of man. And so our last section today, the hope of relief. 
In Genesis 5, 28 and 29, we see that God's people catch this. They, they catch what they're supposed to learn from Enoch. They know that death is weird. They have a hope. And it says this in verse 28, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's dad and the people of the time had a great hope in God. They were hoping for a few things. They were hoping for a son of the woman to come who was going to crush the head of the enemy. And you can tell that Lamech kind of thinks his son might be the one. They're also waiting for the curse of the ground to be reversed. I said before that the serpent was cursed directly, but Adam and Eve were not actually cursed. The ground was cursed because of Adam. Because of this that you've done, the ground will now bear thorns and thistles, and you shall eat bread from the sweat of your brow. It's not going to be easy anymore. This ground is cursed. Is it easy to see that the world is broken? And to Eve, childbirth will be more painful now, and your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Family relationships and relationships between people are broken. Is that agreeable too? Do we see that everywhere? And so they were hoping that when the serpent crusher came, he would kill the enemy, but he would also reverse the curse. The effects of the curse on our work and our world and our life and our relationships would be reversed by the serpent crusher as well. And Noah's dad is really hoping that Noah's the one. I can almost imagine him holding him and like, you little serpent crusher. <laughs> He's going to be the one to bring the world back to the way it should be, to lead us to a future where God's people walk with him and enjoy the fellowship they had before the fall. Noah's dad names him with such a hopeful name, but it ends up being premature. It's almost ironic because what Noah's life leads to, which most of us probably know the story, is basically everything dies. Yes, Noah is saved. Yes, Noah's wife is saved. And his three sons and their wives and a whole bunch of animals floating in a lot of wood on a lot of water for a year. But it's premature. It doesn't seem like the kind of relief from our work that we're actually waiting for. Right? Eight people, a whole bunch of animals. It doesn't seem like that's the hope of Genesis 3.15. Because it is premature. But through Noah and through the family line of Noah will come one who will bring us relief from our curse. Out of the ground that the Lord had made, there will be someone to walk on that ground and reverse the curse. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 kind of gives us a good look at this. Let me turn there real quick. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things. He became flesh and blood. Adam was made out of the dust of the ground. Jesus was human and God. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. There's the serpent crusher. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Were slaves to this broken world. And yet Jesus came to bring the relief that Noah's dad was hoping for. Jesus came into the family of Adam and Seth as the offspring of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and bring relief. And while he's on earth, fulfilling that mission, as he lives and walks, he actually tells us that. 
He makes it super clear. He tells those around him in clear ways that he is the one that we've been waiting for. He is the appointed one to bring relief. He is the one that we've been looking for as the offspring of the woman. And one of the, I think the clearest way is that this verse, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. I think one of the most clear ways is in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 29, Jesus stands up and says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, it sounds so good. He's showing us, I am the answer to the hope that Noah's dad had. I am the answer to this broken world. Look, we grow weary in this place. But Jesus is calling us even today to come to him with our weariness. Because he reverses the curse. After he said these things and after he called people this way, it wasn't much longer that Jesus, like Abel, would be struck down, killed by the people he came to save. And when Jesus died for our sins on the cross, he was taken down and buried underneath the ground that the Lord had cursed on Friday before sundown, buried in darkness under the ground. When he went to death and into the grave, he bore the curse with him. He carried the curse into his death. But... When Jesus rose out of the tomb on the third day, on the Sunday morning, he left the curse in the grave. He killed it. He rose to bring us relief from the pain of this world. He purchased rest for the weary forever. And today, he still calls the weary to himself. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Jesus Christ, who you can put all your trust, all your faith, all your hope in? He'll save you if you do. One day he's going to return and make this whole earth new, and everyone who has put their faith in him will join him in a place with no painful toil, no fruitless labor, no weariness, no serpent, no broken relationships, no broken work. Have you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus? Look, if you haven't, you can put your trust in him today. There's no other way to find relief for our toil. There's no other way for mankind to be saved. There's no other way to experience the grace and the goodness of God both now and forever. And so what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Again, in the passage before, it's to depend on him. But what we mean by that now as we see more and more of this story play out is to believe that, yes, this world is broken, but God cares so deeply about it that he sent his own son. And that as his son lived a perfect life that you and I should have lived, he went to death on the cross for the death that we deserved for not doing it. And when he rose again, he rose to give us life. Do you believe that? Amen. If you've put your faith in Christ, today, right now, as you're believing, like, yes, I'm believing those things, yes. Or maybe some other day that's already happened for you, then what's next is like this passage, once they call upon the name of the Lord, we see Enoch walk with God depending on him every day for everything we need in life and godliness, what do you need to come to the Lord about today? Maybe when we see the spiritual blindness of Lamech and Cain, that we need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal some points of spiritual blindness in our lives. What are the ways that my pride is keeping me from following Jesus well? Maybe you need to seek the Lord in repentance, knowing that he will never leave you or forsake you. You're not going to reveal something to him that he doesn't know, but he calls you to come to him. 
Or maybe thinking about how God planted hope in the midst of a broken situation, that you're looking at a broken situation right now that feels hopeless. Maybe a loved one who's far from the Lord. Maybe a situation in life that seems like you can't figure out these answers. You can trust the Lord in your situation today. He is more faithful to his promises than you can imagine. He's perfectly faithful to his promises. And so you can trust him. It may look overwhelmingly bad, but nothing's too hard for the Lord. He always keeps his promises. Or maybe we've grown accustomed to this world. We've grown accustomed to the way that things are but are not meant to be. And so as death has become normal, maybe we've moved our hope. Maybe we've lowered our bar. Have we forgotten to pray that the kingdom would come on earth like it is in heaven? Are there roots in our heart that we've really settled for? Is there sin in our lives or brokenness around us that we have allowed to become normal to us? Then pray that as the Holy Spirit restores this earth through the work of Christ, that we pursue kingdom things all around us. Or maybe it's just as simple as a commitment to walk with the Lord like Enoch more consistently. To to spend time in prayer, communing with God. To spend time reading his word that he has revealed so much to us in. Not trying to earn the grace, but because of the grace that God has shown us and because he's revealed himself to us, we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds instead of just being shaped like the brokenness around us. And so whatever it is, the band's going to come up here in a second. I'd like to pray for us in these things. What is it that you need to seek the Lord for today? What is it? Is is it calling upon the name of the Lord? Do you need to call upon him, to to call him to save you today? Then do that in this moment. Do Do you need to get in with people who are walking with the Lord and be taught, like Jesus told his disciples, go into all the earth and teach them how to obey these commands. Like Teach them about what I taught you, but how to do it too. We have small groups for things like that and relationships with people in this church. This church is a loving place. God's people are like this. And so, would you pray with me now as you ask the Lord to show you those things? Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray thanking you for revealing yourself to us. Lord, we pray knowing that there is a blindness in us that we don't recognize. Holy Spirit, would you reveal that to us? Lord, there are some in this room who may not know you at all with the glory of a Savior who would come to this broken earth, be revealed to them right now if it hasn't been already, would you open their eyes to see, change their hearts and save them? Lord, we call upon your name today. The only place where hope is found. Whatever it is, Father, would you move in this place? Would you reveal yourself to us as you always do? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.